end. And now we're at the end, we're at this point where, um, you know, the, the gospel story kind of reaches its climax. There's been all this buildup, and now Jesus is, is finally headed to the cross. Um, and so we're going to be looking today at, at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, his arrest, and his trial before the high priest. And we've seen, like I said, you know, everything that we've been talking about has kind of led up to this moment. We've been focusing on, on discipleship, and we've seen these themes throughout the different stories that, that we've looked at. And um, there have been these themes of insiders and outsiders. You know, the, the people who would have been normally considered to be the insiders, whether it's the religious elite or even looking at the disciples that Jesus called in and seeing so many times that, that they miss it, that they get it wrong. Um, but then we have these outsiders, and Jesus is calling them in, these, these people who are sick and poor and foreigners, and, and they're the ones that are showing true faith. Um, we've seen these themes of, of Jesus confronting those who are seeking power, status, and wealth, um, whether that is the, the rich young ruler or, or those religious elite or, or the disciples as they're fighting over who's the greatest. And in, in all of that, Jesus is continuing to call people to examine their hearts. Um, to look to see, do you have eyes, eyes to see and ears to hear, or, or do you have a heart that is hard and focused on other things? So all these themes that we've seen throughout the series, we're going to see them in our story today as well. Um, and we kind of have a lot to, to go through today, so we're just going to jump right in. Um, we're going to be in Mark 14, starting in verse 32. So he went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading rebellion, said Jesus, that you come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. This question that Jesus asks at the end of that passage really kind of sets the tone um, for what we're looking at today, where Jesus says, am I leading a rebellion? Do you come out with swords and clubs to capture me? And he's saying this, obviously, in response to the mob that's come to arrest him, but also in response to his own disciples who are there. 
because everyone who's present here has in some way misunderstood who Jesus is and rejected what he's about. And it's true that Jesus is doing something really revolutionary, but he is not here to lead a revolt. The word that's used here um, that we see translated as, as rebellion um, is this Greek word, leistes. And, and it, it's actually a, a person, so it'd be like a person leading a rebellion. Um, also in other translations, it's, it's translated as robber. And it basically means one who plunders openly and by violence. So it's someone who comes in trying to take something by force. This is the same word that Jesus actually used when he was confronting the chief priests in the temple, when he cleared the temple and said, you have made my temple into a den of robbers. So the irony here is that it's, it's those religious leaders, the people that are coming to arrest Jesus, the ones who have been plotting to kill him, who have been trying to trap him, who are these ones that, that are coming in violence and by force, trying to force their own way. And yet they're coming treating Jesus as if he's the one. And even the disciples are here, and they are ready to engage in violent revolution. You know, many thought that this Messiah that was going to come was going to be this insurrectionist, one that would come and defeat Rome by force. But Jesus is here saying to everyone present, that is not my way. See, everybody here misunderstood God's kingdom, and they chose to look out for their own interests, even those who wanted to be a part of God's kingdom were going about it in the same way as the world around them. And so I, I want us today to, to look at kind of each of the characters that are in this story so we can kind of see what it is, why, why they kind of got so off track and missed out on what Jesus was all about. So starting with the chief priests, the teachers of the law, just sometimes translated as scribes, and the elders. These people were the religious leaders who were in charge of governing the Jewish people, both in the religious sector and in the civic sector. So they were, they were overseeing the functions of the temple. They were also you know, making decrees and, and laws for, for the way that the Jewish people interacted and went about their lives. Um, and they were also this, this criminal court. And, and together, um, these, these chief priests, teachers of law, elders, 70 of them made up what was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was led then by the high priest. And so these people that had, had been charged with, with, um, with leading the Jewish people had actually become a corrupt ruling party. They, they cared more about their own power, status, and wealth. And so we see that their coming, their, their arrest of Jesus, all of this, is them trying to trap Jesus, plotting to kill him because he threatened their power. See, people listened to Jesus. The crowds were always flocking to him. They were soaking up his teaching, which sometimes contradicted the teaching of their scribes. They were experiencing healing and forgiveness, which were signs of God's kingdom. But they cared more about their own power and status than about God's kingdom. And they came with this very forceful and violent way, not because Jesus was violent, but because they were afraid of Jesus, and they were afraid of the people. It says earlier in, in chapter 14 that they wanted to arrest Jesus and kill him, but they didn't want to do it while the crowds were around, because they were afraid those people who, who loved Jesus would, would turn on them as well. And so they come here at night, 
He's alone with his disciples. And if we carry on in the story, verse 53, we see Jesus before the Sanhedrin as he's on trial, the high priest. As they took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together, Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? <clears throat> but Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. We see this trial that's going on here, and we see in this the corruption of, these, of the Sanhedrin, that they are not here looking for truth. They are here looking to convict Jesus. They're trying to force their way. They're coming with all these false accusations against him. And yet in the midst of that, Jesus stays silent. He doesn't feel this need to, to fight back, to defend himself, to justify himself. He is secure in who he is and what he's about. He probably knows that even if he tried to, to defend himself, it's not going to do any good. So he stays silent. And it's only when the high priest asks, are you the Messiah, the son of the Blessed One, that Jesus responds and says that he is. And then the language that he uses here is very strategic and intentional. He says that he is the son of man and that he'll be sitting at the right hand of God. This is language that came from the Hebrew scriptures that talks about this coming Messiah, who is also seen as this priestly king that was going to come. So Jesus, in saying this, is claiming that he is this Messiah, this priestly king figure. And it's at this point that the high priest claims that Jesus has blasphemed. And he, he makes this big show of tearing his clothes, which would have been, in Jewish culture, this just show of excessive grief. You know, he's, he's basically just kind of playing it up here, um, acting like he is so angry, so upset over Jesus speaking out against God. But the reality is that Jesus isn't speaking out against God. What he's doing here is he's setting himself up as the true high priest. And that, that is what this high priest is upset about, right? Because if Jesus is the true high priest, what does that mean for him and for his ruling class? You see, all along the way, Jesus has been threatening their hierarchy simply by drawing people in who they had cast out. He was bringing in and giving honor to the poor, the foreigners, the sick, while at the same time calling out the priests and the leaders and the elders. Jesus has been making claims that the first will be last. He is he's turning things upside down, right? He is making this 
He's made this big display when he was in the temple where he's calling their systems corrupt. And he even, he did foretell that the temple would be destroyed. Not that he was going to destroy it as the false testimony claimed. But Jesus knew that this temple had become an idol for them. It had become a symbol of their power and authority. So Jesus was predicting that their own idolatry was going to lead to their destruction. And so this group, this ruling party, they knew that if what Jesus said was true, and if the people continued to follow him, that their power structure was going to crumble. And so they came using force and violence to maintain their own power status and wealth. But we know that they didn't act alone. We see Judas in this story, someone who was a disciple and a friend of Jesus. We see even as he comes to Jesus and he calls him rabbi and he kisses him. And it shows the, the intimacy of their relationship. And although the Gospels often tell us from the beginning when they mention Judas, they'll say Judas the betrayer, that is only because they're looking back, right? Jesus, Judas was, at the beginning, he was this true disciple. He was somebody who was a friend of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. And nobody expected that he was going to turn on him, right? When, when Jesus... When Jesus, of course, who knew that he was going to do that, when he predicts that somebody's going to betray him, none of the disciples pointed their finger at Judas. They didn't say, oh, we knew he was going to do that, right? He, would, he had been this true disciple. And we don't know his motiva motivation. Um, it's never really made clear. There have been a lot of assumptions about what motivated Judas. Um, some people think that it was all about money and greed, in, in the Gospel of John, they, they kind of it gives this detail that, that Judas was the treasurer, that maybe sometimes he took money from out of the money bag, and so some people assume that maybe it's just all about money, right? There are other people who, who actually believe that, that Judas was a zealot, that he was a part of this um, of these Jewish people who were basically insurrectionists, who wanted to overthrow Rome by force. Um, the zealots were also known even for committing violence against the priests, when they saw the corruption of the priests. And so some people even think that, that Judas here as a zealot, maybe he wasn't even so much looking to betray Jesus, but maybe he was looking to spur on this violent revolution that he thought that Jesus was going to bring about. That he thought that if he turned Jesus over, Jesus was going to fight back, and here it goes if he begins. Right? And the truth is we don't know. <laughs> we don't know what those motivations were, but what we do know about Judas, what we see in him, is that he was someone who was close to Jesus, someone who had given up everything to follow Jesus, just like the other disciples. And yet somewhere along the line, he misunderstood what Jesus was about, and he chose a way that was in opposition to Jesus's way. And it had some really dire consequences. So we see Judas, this disciple who turned on Jesus in this really blatant way, but he wasn't the only disciple who actually turned on Jesus. Right? We see Peter. Jesus had, had already predicted before this moment that Peter is going to deny him three times. And so this is why when they're in the garden and Jesus is praying and all the disciples fall asleep, even though all of them are sleeping, Jesus specifically, specifically calls out Simon Peter. He says, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, Peter is such an interesting character. He is someone who is, 
he was one of the closest disciples and friends of Jesus. He had so much zeal for Jesus that he thought he was going to stick by him no matter what. In verses 29 to 31, when Jesus was predicting that everyone's going to turn away and specifically that, that Peter's going to deny him, his response is, even if all fall away, I will not. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. He had all this zeal, but his zeal actually blinded him from truly understanding what Jesus was about. See, there had been so many times where Jesus tried to explain that this is what was going to happen. He was headed to the cross. He was going to die. And every single time, Peter tried to stand in the way of that. He truly, even though he truly desired to follow Jesus, he believed that he would be with him no matter what. Even he is susceptible to temptation. Even he misunderstands it sometimes because he is human. There's a lot of significance in Peter's denial, that it's not just him betraying a friend, but what he was actually doing here, he was denouncing his relationship with his rabbi, which in Jewish culture... That was so significant. That was one of the greatest insults, to publicly denounce your rabbi. And in this action, he actually gave up his right to still be considered a disciple. Which is why when we see, after Jesus has risen from the dead, we see that the angel meets the women at the tomb. And in chapter 16, verse 7, he says, Go tell his disciples and Peter that Jesus is going before you to Galilee. This is because Peter was no longer considered a disciple. His actions had disqualified him from the status of being a disciple. But even so, Jesus calls him back. He gives them that chance to repent. And when he does, he goes on to play this major role in the formation of the early church. So we see, we've seen some of these, these pretty flagrant acts so far that are committed against Jesus from all these characters so far. But there were also some that were a lot more subtle, right? There were these other disciples and bystanders who were there at the time. And it tells us that one disciple cuts off the ear of a servant of the high priest. You know, some of the other gospel accounts tell us that this was Peter who did that. Um, but Mark just says that it was one of those standing near. And I think that this is intentional because it wasn't just about Peter, right? It was about the disciples that were there that didn't understand the nature of his kingdom. I bet if it wasn't Peter that had, had pulled out his sword first, the others were there ready to do the same. They were ready to use the same methods as their enemies to defend the kingdom. And I really like the way that, uh, that Tim Gombus kind of sums up this moment here in his commentary on Mark. He says, not only does this detail portray the chaos of the situation, but it once again indicates that the disciples are behaving like non-disciples who are opposed to Jesus' agenda. They are still trying to prevent him from going to the cross. They still have not grasped that violent rebellion is not the way of the kingdom. God's reign comes through the Son of Man, giving himself up to death on the cross. And God's kingdom is inhabited by people who go the way of the cross. Disciples do not retaliate recognizing that doing so is the way of self-destruction and death, behavior that signals Satan's reign. Jesus is not looking for his disciples to be alert so that they can defend him, preventing his arrest. Disciples are called to be with Jesus, identifying with him as he is betrayed and goes to the cross. 
watching and praying would prevent them from abandoning Jesus. It may have even led to their being delivered over and being seized along with Jesus. But watchfulness would not have driven them to violently defend him. So it's easy for us to, to look at the chief priests and the, the teachers of the law and the elders, even Judas and Peter, and point our fingers at their blatant sin and denial of Jesus. But the truth is that everybody who was there turned away from Jesus. Whether it was that they were trying to defend the kingdom and, and turning to violence to do it, or whether it was that they just ran away. In verse 50, it tells us that everyone deserted him and fled. And Jesus knew this was going to happen. He predicted it earlier in verse 27, which is why he had been urging them to stay awake and to pray. He wanted them to keep watch so that they wouldn't be tempted. And yet everyone chose to look out for themselves rather than stay with Jesus. Each one of these people that, that we have looked at, they were all claiming the name of God, yet they misunderstood the way of God. And for some, their misdeeds were blatant, but everyone missed it and chose self-preservation instead at some point. And we see all of this contrasted with Jesus. In the story, as we look at Jesus, we see that he didn't fight back. Whether they came at him with violence or mockery, he stayed silent even in the midst of false accusation. He wasn't trying to justify himself or defend his, himself. He was secure in who he was. We see Jesus loving his enemies, that even as they're disrespecting him, he's still showing respect. We see Jesus giving up his life for the sake of others. He is faithful to what he has been called to do, even when it causes him to suffer. And we see that all of this comes from him being grounded in his union with his father. Right? We saw him in the garden as he was with his father. He was wrestling, he was lamenting, he was pleading with God, but ultimately he trusted God. That even if he had to suffer and be killed, that God's kingdom would remain that God's purposes would prevail, and that was what mattered most. So just to kind of to sum this all up, just the differences that we see in, in the way of the world, in the way of Jesus, I've got a couple lists that will be up here. So the way of the world seeks power, status, and wealth. The way of the world seeks self-preservation. And the way of the world, the way that they hold power, is with power over. And this term power over comes from, actually comes from Brene Brown, and she talks about ways that people hold power. Power over is about force, violence, shaming, belittling. When we see kind of like these authoritarian figures, um, that's, that's the power over. But then we see all this contrasted with the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus seeks the kingdom of God seeking the love and justice and right relationship of the kingdom of God above all else. The way of Jesus is self-giving. Even when it costs, it's still, still going to pursue what is good. And the way of Jesus um, has this power with dynamic that Brene Brown also describes. And, and this power with 
is not about forcing your way, but it's about humility, it's about mutuality, sharing the power, inviting others in, it's about respect. That's what we see in Jesus. And it might be easy for us to look at others, especially with those, those whom we disagree with, and see the ways that they are missing it when it comes to Jesus. And point out when we see flagrant injustice or moral failure. But it's often much harder, or maybe even just more uncomfortable and less satisfying, for us to look inside our own hearts and see the ways that we ourselves are missing it. The ways that we are causing harm. others are perpetrating, right? We see Jesus doing that, but if we spend all our time pointing fingers at those out there and refuse to see our own brokenness and missteps, we will also be missing out on the gospel and on Jesus' call to truly follow him. So even as, as followers of Jesus and people who are seeking to advance his kingdom, we can misunderstand Jesus' mission and call. We can avert our gaze ever so slightly, away from Jesus and on to power and status and wealth. And sometimes we can justify it with really Christian-y language. Right? When we start to think that, you know, if, if I can just make some more money, if I can grow my audience, if we can bring in more people to, to our church, then we're going to reach more people. Right? Then we're going to be able to do more good. But this slight turn of focus off of Jesus and on to the numbers, the money, the influence, can lead us astray. It's what we see, what's going on in the heart in those moments, is what leads to when we see these, these um, toxic and oppressive leaders. Right? That's where it starts in the, in the heart, at this like, slight this turn of focus. Right? Nobody becomes this, this evil oppressor overnight. But this slightest shift of focus can eventually lead us to getting way off track and causing a lot of harm. And the truth is that we are all susceptible to the very seductive lure of power, status, and wealth. And so we need to stay awake, as Jesus warned. We often focus so much on the threat out there. Those people, the world, that political party. But Jesus is calling us when he's telling us to stay awake, to watch out for the threat inside our own hearts. He's calling us to be aware of what's happening inside of us. He's calling us to question our own motivations. He says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We cannot follow Jesus by our own strength because our natural inclinations and desires are always going to lead us towards self-preservation. We may have the best of intentions, but we're still human. And so if we're to remain faithful to God, we must continue to come to him, to call out to him, to seek him, listen for his voice, to allow him to show us the offensive ways in our own hearts. We must allow him to lead us in the way of the cross, which, which is to die to our selfish desires and learn to live in his kingdom way of love and peace. And so as, as we kind of finish up today, um, just the, the reflection that I have for you guys as you, as you kind of go out into your week um, is just to consider Jesus' call to us as disciples, the same call that we saw all throughout the Gospels. You see here at the end, 
this call for us to, to check our hearts. Right? And it's not just something that happens one time. It's following Jesus is not just a choice that we make once, but it's a choice that we make every day and in a, in a million little ways throughout the day. To check our hearts and ask, our, ask ourselves, what is it that, that you're pursuing? Whose way are you following? This is what Jesus calls us to over and over again. Please pray with me. Um, Jesus, we are, we are so grateful for, for your incredible um, self-giving love, um, for the immense love that you have for us, that you would even come to earth in the first place, that, that you would go through that suffering, um, that you would die a humiliating death on the cross. God, we know that you did that all in love for us. We thank you for the example that we have in you as, as we look at the Gospels. And God, we pray that you would help us to follow in that example. When given the choice, help us to choose your way rather than the way of the world. Help us to pursue your kingdom and your goodness in the way that we see you doing it, God. Help us to be people who are truly your disciples, who follow you in, in each area of our lives, God. We pray in your name. Um, that passage that uh, you preached on today on uh, Jesus in those moments um, leading up to the cross are so um, such a good um, example, such a validating kind of uh, story of what many of us might be feeling today, uh, including myself. You know, this is uh, the part of the year where a lot of us feel tired, uh, unmotivated, uh, discouraged. Um, we have a brain fog. I have a brain fog today. Um, you begin doubting yourself. You kind of have a clear picture, a clear vision for life and uh, for the semester, for the year. And this is when you start doubting yourself. This is that period where, you know, Thanksgiving, and it's still too early for Christmas songs, but people are starting to play Christmas songs. We're not feeling it yet. You're just kind of getting over. Um, you know, uh, uh, Halloween, and, um, uh, you know, it's not yet Christmas, not yet Thanksgiving, but it's been a really long journey to get here. We're kind of crawling to the, the end of, uh, end of the, uh, the year. And this is also the time where I find myself and other people also um, fighting our internal demons. You know, I think we all have our internal demons, and they all seem to kind of pop up at the worst po time possible, which is usually around this time, right? And um, we not only all carry our internal demons, but we all, uh, in some ways, I think using Christian language, um, we all carry our own crosses, just as Jesus uh, carried his cross. And I know from the stories of many of you that many of the crosses that you carry all the time have to do also with things that Jesus experienced when he was on earth, things like abuses of power involving family members, involving friends, involving religious leaders that use God uh, to advance their own uh, agenda, and usually uh, you know, in ways that are hurtful and exploitative to you. I know a lot of the crosses that we all carry involve disappointments, relational disappointments, betrayals, people that we trusted and people who use that trust against us and um, and for us to hear me uh, be grounded in the story of Jesus um, it's um, 
it's so humanizing and validating to know that the God that we worship and the God that we love, the God that loves us, he knows exactly what it's like to live in this world uh, like this. In fact, in Mark 14, as Vanessa was preaching, Jesus said, my soul is sorrowful uh, even unto death. This is Jesus talking. This is how he was experiencing. And, um, and I, I, uh, one of the reflections that I had from, uh, that really stuck out from Vanessa's message was that even well-meaning and uh, kind of weak, uh, well-meaning friends will end up doing things and saying things that will kind of stand in the way that might suggest that you don't have to carry your cross, even though you know that the only way through it and the only way forward is to carry it and to move forward and to move through it. So what I want to do uh, for this morning is um, I'm guessing that many of you guys might uh, be able to relate to what I'm talking about, um, that you have in mind specifically what I'm talking about in terms of the cross that you carry or the burden that you, you bear, uh, the sorrow that you bear in your heart. So what I would like to do is just invite us as we close today, just for a few moments, and I'm going to ask uh, Elliot to, Pastor Elliot, to just play uh, some music in the background. Uh, I want us to follow what Christ modeled here. I, uh, and what Christ modeled, uh, the, the two parts I want us to follow is, one, his silence. I think silence is one of the most difficult things you can do when you're carrying your cross in the middle of uh, a, t a season of tiredness, unmotivation, and a lack of, um, uh, a lack of trusting yourself and trusting this way. So I want to invite you into a, a silence of Christ, a silence that was filled with the trust um, that, of, of surrender and of trust to the Father. And then the second half, which I'll lead us through um, in just a few moments, is to, to take us uh, to follow Christ's words when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, well, if possible, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. So let's follow Christ in these two ways, in the silence and then the not my will, but your will be done. Let's enter into this for a few moments this morning. Father, I want to lift up all the heavy hearts in this room, all the heavy hearts outside, uh, joining us outside, all the heavy hearts that are joining us online in this moment and in the future as well. 
there's so many cares, so many wounds, so much pain uh, for, for any person, uh, for, for any of us to be able to fathom and to know. And yet you know it all. You carry it all. You hold all of it on your heart. And Lord, you're trustworthy for this because you know exactly what it's like to suffer through betrayal. You know exactly what it's like when you don't want to carry a cross, but, but the cross is for your, you to bear. It wasn't fair for you to have to carry this cross in the first place, but because you were bro born into this broken world, because of the cards that you happen to be dealt, you find yourself carrying this cross nonetheless. You didn't ask for it. You didn't deserve it. You didn't make choices that made this happen, such, such that it's your fault. But yet you still have to carry this, these consequences. And you still have to find a way forward. And Lord, it's these kinds of burdens, these kind of crosses that we look to you to accompany us and to carry alongside with us, to suffer with us. And this morning when these um, voices, these, uh, this voice, these voices of doubt, this uh, slodge, slog that's making us feel stuck. Lord, would you give us enough strength to just get through this day? And tomorrow, would you give us just enough strength to get through that day as well? And so on and so forth. Until we can reach a place of clarity and of rest. But until we get to that place, while we're still in this sludge, Lord, would you carry us, whether it has to do with financial stresses, with job-related stresses, historical relational stresses and wounds, with worries in the future that we're holding in our heart, with uh, questions of what, what am I to do with my life uh, that are lingering in the future as well, with questions of doubt and self-doubt, with questions of shame. Lord, would you pierce through all the gunk so that at least for a few moments we know that we don't have to be alone and that we can be with you and that we can be with each other. And Lord, we join you in your prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. If possible, Lord, take this cup from us. Take this cup from me, if possible. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Amen.